when I was born, my mum was in Pakistan and she was in the care of my in-laws and she went into confinement for 40 days. So that meant she didn't leave home, you know, she had to eat certain foods. Yeah, so it was very different. And even things like when she was pregnant, there was a rumour if you use scissors or anything that's sharp, your child in your growing in your body could be deformed. Hello there. Today, raising kids in a culturally diverse family. This is Navigating Parenthood, brought to you by HCF, and I'm Gretchen Miller. Our guest, Saman Shard, has had three children, Milan, who's nine, Caden, who's seven, and Niall, who's two. And their births occurred in three different countries, England, Dubai, and Australia. Saman is from Pakistan. She grew up in Bahrain and Australia, and her husband, Matt, is Scottish. So you can imagine things might get interesting when you think about parenting, culture, and the weight of all different kinds of expectations. With Saman is Dr. Gare Henning Presterudston. He's an anthropologist from the University of Western Sydney, and he's an expert in the way gender, ethnicity, class, and sexuality rub up against one another. And of course, this podcast contains general health information and shouldn't be relied on as medical advice about your situation. Talk to your doctor for health advice and services. HCF does not adopt or endorse any statements or opinions made during the podcast. And if you're feeling depressed or anxious and need to talk to someone now, call Lifeline on 131114. Now, Saman, let's start with you. Can you take us back to Pakistan, where you were born? What were the relationship expectations between parents and kids there? Who's in charge? Well, I mean, as always, I think it's mums. But also I think because you've got uh, multi-generational families living together, you've got the, uh, which is in my case, the matriarch, which was my grandmother who kind of oversaw the household. And then my mum who married my dad lived with my dad's family. So that's usually the case, you know, you go and live with your in-laws. So we all kind of lived in a big household when I was born. I mean, I left Pakistan when I was four, but my earliest childhood experiences were mostly with my grandmother because my mom, I guess, was quite different from other moms in Pakistan where she's a, so she's a scientist. So she uh, went back to work when I was six months old. So my grandmother really looked after me uh, in those initial years and my mom and dad worked full time. And then you came to Australia at the age of 12. And where was it that you met your husband? So, yeah, so I did all of my high school and university here. And then after university, I went backpacking around Europe because that's what all Aussies do and that he was doing the same. And your husband is Scottish, which is in and of itself a really strong culture. When you first got together, did you think about the implications of being a couple from two very, very different cultural backgrounds? So we lived in London. I mean, I lived in London for 10 years. And to be honest with you, mixed race and mixed cultural couples are the norm, I felt. I think we're living in such a globalized world now. I think if my parents' generation went, as my mom went and met a Scottish man, I think it would have been a very different experience to what it is now. 
Gaia, to you now, as an anthropologist in Australia with all its various cultural heritages, you'd be listening to this, I think, with some interest. And you've got an interest in tradition and masculinity, but also gender, ethnicity, class. Are Saman and Matt, as global citizens, particularly unusual, do you think? No, I, uh, not at all, I think. I think that's becoming the norm now. And you also see the, the, the growth, I suppose, of what we can call almost a global culture, right? You know, we have this all, all of this commonalities that exist among particularly younger people throughout the world that I suppose, you know, at least, while we're not necessarily becoming more similar, at least we are getting an increase or a broader spectrum of similar interests and, and knowledges across the world. Obviously, there's every different kind of combination of cultural mixes, as there could be couples in the world, I think. And each one has to sort of tread their own very particular route through a number of landmarks of being cross-cultural. What are the main issues that others like Saman and Matt might come up against? Every culture is constantly changing all the time. And all cultures is by definition, you know, hybrid cultures. And, and you know, I think very often... What we think of as cultural difference really is just, you know, the sort of a, a historical trajectory of social change as well that happens. But of course, you know, what we can learn from, of course, is the notion what it actually means to live in a, in a, in a country which is intrinsically and very sort of thoroughly multicultural, which we do. Like Australia. Exactly. And like London, mm. but perhaps not like Pakistan. Yeah, it would be very different. But having said that, I mean, so my uncle, who's Pakistani, also married an Australian woman, you know, so he's the next generation up. And they went with their kids and lived in Pakistan for a little bit, and it was fine. In the UK, whenever we, we went to any doctors or whatever, we always have to fill out our ethnic background. And I think that's how they came up with statistics that there, the the fastest growing sector of the population were mixed race people. And I mean, I was speaking to my nine-year-old last night and I was like, what do you consider yourself? You know, because her friends are from an Asian background and where, you know, so I was like, do you consider yourself Asian? And she's like, yeah, because you're from an Asian background and dad's from a Scottish background. So I guess I'm part Asian as well, you know. And But I think like, honestly, whenever I talk to her generation of kids, even like, I think I can see it from my generation, it's changing compared to my parents' generation. But I think from their generation, it's just going to be so, I think, irrelevant. Saman, let's go back to London and your first pregnancy with Milan. I, you know, I mean, like a lot of immigrants, you start a family in a country that is not necessarily where you have your own roots. And I, and that's what we did. Um, and we didn't have family in London, like Matt's family lived in Scotland and most of my family actually lives in Australia and, and parts of Pakistan. And so, yeah, so it was it was very hard. But you don't think that when you're becoming a parent for the first time. You're just in the throes of being pregnant and stuff. But but it was nice that my mom could come on a couple of occasions. And she was inserting the Pakistani side of things. Where, you know, she, uh, she <laughs> smuggled in this little, like, jar of coconut mixture that was meant to, you know, be good to take in pregnancy and when you're breastfeeding and, you know, just looked after me and then, you know, had morning sickness. So she made like lemon pickles and things like that. So that was really, really good. And and so tell me, before we go on to after the baby, how did you respond to your mum's very cultural care? Did you like the lemons? Did you eat the coconut mixture? No. <laughs> um, it was nice, but it wasn't to my taste. I mean, it was quite heavy. It was like coconuts and nuts and sugar and, and fat. And the medical advice you receive now is that you can't 
eat so much sugar because of gestational diabetes and and you just basically eat normally. You don't have to eat that many more calories, really. And so, um, look, it was good in some ways. In other ways, because my mum has brought me up in Australia and different parts of the world, I think she was quite aware as to how much I would follow what she did. And she, what she did was completely different to me, you know. So when I was born, my mum was in Pakistan and she was in the care of my in-laws and she went into confinement for 40 days. 40 days. Yeah. So that meant she didn't leave home. You know, she had to, you know, she got massages and she, you know, had to eat certain foods. Yeah. So it was very different. And even things like when she was pregnant, there was a rumor if you use scissors or anything that's sharp, your child in your growing in your body could be deformed. So she didn't, you know, and so things like that I didn't believe in. Did your mum, speaking about these sorts of intergenerational pressures, did she bring those to you and say, look, you know, I'll do the cutting? <laughs> no, no, thankfully. <laughs> she, I think she was like, yeah, she knows me too well to, to try and suggest it. But she mentioned this is what I did, you know, and I think there, there was no expectation that I would follow that. Gaya, listening to Saman's story there, what ideas is that triggering for you in your work and observations of intergenerational cultural change? One obvious thing there, I think, which you see is the pattern in, you know, how, uh, how the relationship between mothers and, and daughters, I think, in terms of child rearing and, and parenting, how that has changed over time, is this notion that women or mothers have moved away from, you know, listening to cultural advice or to treating their previous generation as the experts and now moving on to treating doctors and uh, uh, health professionals as the experts. And in the process, of course, a lot of the cultural knowledge either becomes dismissed or becomes irrelevant and, I suppose, becomes lost in a way. Obviously, you know, this is a classic concern for the older generation in any culture, that their children are no longer doing the, this in a culturally appropriate way and so forth. You're with Navigating Parenthood, the podcast which is all about you, brought to you by HCF. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Leave a review wherever you're listening and tell your friends to check us out. So, Saman, your baby's born in London and after a few weeks you're like, Mum, please come help. So what did she do for you when she arrived? She bought comfort. She swept in and she started cooking and she, things like doing the dishes, like really basic things that, you know, like you might have a friend come in and say, help you out one afternoon so you can have a nap, but it's not someone who would do it consistently. And I think that's where family steps in, you know, where you just kind of feel like I've got a safety net. And I think that's what she really provided for us. And she was there for a good six weeks, you know, so just made me feel connected. Like I was part of a, part of like, something more than just me and my husband and now our baby in this city where we didn't have family. But I think it was also interesting because like two weeks after my mum arrived, my in-laws arrived from Scotland. And so they had a very different, you know, because my daughter was born in the winter and it was snowing and they were like, hey, you got to get out of here, you know, whereas for me, it was more just like, let's just stay in indoors. Like the last thing I want to do is take a tiny little baby out in the snow for a walk. But my in-laws, so the way they raised my husband was he would always be put in his pram, always be put outside because it was considered beneficial for babies to be out 
in the fresh air. Like, they rugged us up and they were like, get out. And so um, I remember this really well, just pushing my tiny baby and it was snowing. And I was like, the last thing I want to do is be out here. But that was just me just doing it for them, really. It's like, okay, let's all go out. And we walked around. And to be honest, it was no one, no one even with like a baby out in this weather. And it was just interesting to me how how differently. So like my husband and I were were brought up very differently. And we always sort of talk about that quite often because he was formula fed from day one and I was breastfed till I was two, you know, and I co-slept with my parents and he was left to cry it out and would be put in his pram in the day because that's what it was all about and left to cry out in the garden and had a very strict routine from like day one. Like this is when babies are meant to sleep, this is when they're meant to eat, whereas mine was much more like baby-led as opposed to adult-led. And there you are, the new mum, presumably having to wrangle the politics of this. I think very early on I learned to take people's advice and say that's great but really go with what I felt worked for me and I think that is my biggest advice to any new parent is to go with what works for you because we all have our own sets of beliefs in terms of how we want to raise kids and how we want to parent and I think what works for you works for you and you know you and you know your family's situation best. Gaya, you look like you've got something to say about this interesting mix of generations and cultures coming together in a cold London winter. That almost sort of comes across as a human universal in how people talk about and think about childhood is this adage that, you know, it takes a village to to raise a child. Of course, you know, there's a couple of elements on that that's complicated in the current or contemporary society. One of them, of course, is that as you experienced, it's almost impossible to pull that off because most people live outside the, the larger community, away from their parents and those sort of things. So you don't have the support network. The other implication of that saying, of course, that it takes a village to raise a child is the notion that everyone involved in raising the child agrees on how it should be done. Of course, in the in the multicultural relationships, that is no longer the case. And, and I think, you know, that's your experience with the two sets of in-laws with uh, very different ideas about uh, how children should be reared is an example of how that becomes complicated. So your children, one was born in London, then you had one in Dubai. And then I had my youngest two years ago in Sydney and it was very different for him because we had all my family around. So I have my aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmother here, so it helped. And Caden, who's seven, he really wants to go back to Dubai and see where, you know, where he was born and the hospital that he was born in and just like he's fascinated by it. Yeah, and I'm finding the concept of third culture kids really interesting. And I think it's perhaps going to become more and more the norm where we're just moving around so much. Because I honestly, when I look at my kids, I think we've moved around so much. I don't even know what it's going to be like for them because they're probably going to be living all over and probably marrying people from all over. So What's it going to be for their kids, you know? So that's just so fascinating to me. And so, Gaia, I'm really thinking this is where it becomes tricky, actually, is helping your children hold on to, in some way, their cultural identity. And I wonder if there's problems with perhaps picking and choosing the best bits. How long does it take for a family with a range of different influences to start to lose interest in those various origins? Yeah, look, um, I think that's a ex- very complicated question. And of course, it's sort of a classic anthropological answer is that uh, it's it's complicated. What I would say, though, is that I do think we, we often tend to emphasise the sort of direct instruction in how kids pick up things. So we think, you know, if I don't teach them my culture, they'll never get it. 
in my experience, I think children learn much more effectively by just picking up. If as a parent, if you actually practice some cultural aspects, children will intuitively try to understand that and gain cultural competence in that. I think it's important to remember that, you know, cultures are produced, cultures are not the sort of thing that we get and sort of put on and carry with us for the rest of our life. It's rather, you know, we are active producers of it. And I think that's where your concept of third culture comes in as well. As people who come from really different cultural backgrounds and combinations of cultures, we can say that. But your Pakistani grandparents might well feel very differently about that and feel really anxious about a sense of loss. Yeah, I mean, my grandmother is still here and she has been here since we were kids. And she has, I think from her perspective, it's the biggest change. It's just watching her come from Pakistan into Australia as a grand, and she was a grandparent when she did, and then just seeing all her little, you know, kids growing up and then marrying outside of the culture, because all of us have, actually. So all my cousins and I have all been, no one's with someone Pakistani, which is interesting. And so I think that was hard for her. And I think the hardest part for her is to be able to communicate that, to be able to say, I'm worried about what that means to who we are, to the family that I knew and that's been there for generations. So, yeah, 100%, I agree. Mm. So what are you doing in your family from in the day-to-day to maintain your Pakistani culture, to maintain Matt's Scottish culture? We we both are aware of our, our cultural backgrounds, but I think when you live in a place like Australia, and because I grew up in Australia as well, you know, it's trying to to stay connected. So I celebrate Eid, which is a big Muslim Pakistani celebration. We have Ramadan. You know, my dad just got back from Pakistan, funnily enough, yesterday, and he bought all these traditional outfits for my kids so that, you know, when we have our cultural celebrations, they can wear those outfits They're all good. They're all happy about that. And then last year we went to Scotland and we travelled a lot around Scotland and they really got to connect with their grandparents and that side of them. So we're trying. We're trying. Are you eating Scottish food as well as Pakistani food? I'm not having haggis. (laughs) Drawing the line at haggis? Oh, I I don't know. I mean, it's not something you'd have every day. Uh, I would have it if I have to, but it's not something I would naturally have. But our so in terms of eating, yeah, we eat a lot of curries and rice and that's just a standard diet. So I think it's good that my parents are here because I think that they're the biggest injection of culture from that side from my kids. I probably wouldn't have been, you know? That's where, Gaia, what you were saying about living the culture rather than having it imposed on you comes in. Yeah, look, I think, you know, we often tend to think of, you know, culture as something that, you know, there's big occasions or there's sort of massive elaborate celebrations of it. But, you know, culture really is the stuff of every day, you know, what we do, what we eat, how we talk to each other, what we think about together and and, and those sort of things. And um, I think, you know, that's where children easily pick up, you know, culture and get a sense of culture too. Mm, And I'm thinking now, of course, about language. Do you speak Urdu at home? I speak Urdu to my parents and I tried speaking Urdu to my daughter, you know, being the first. I tried really hard to try and teach her. And she actually, funnily enough, learnt like her numbers and she could mention different parts of her body and stuff in Urdu. But the thing that I found with language is consistency. You have to keep talking. And because I speak to my husband in English, it was very easy for me to just constantly revert back to English. 
I certainly think, you know, that it's increasingly common what you say, that, which is the case with your children, that they no longer know the language of their parents or the first language of their parents. And, of course, language is an extraordinarily important bearer of cultural values and of cultural ideas. But I think what's interesting, though, with language is that I think technology is really coming to the rescue now. So I, I was speaking to a lady who only spoke Chinese. She didn't speak English and we were trying to communicate. And she had this amazing app where she basically, it was quite a complicated thing she wanted to communicate. And she just typed, no, she spoke it in Chinese. And that app completely translated it really well. It was about purchasing a fan or something into English. And I was like, I don't know how technology is going to come into play, but I think we're going to be able to communicate more and more with people from other languages easier. But that does not take place of learning a different language, definitely. It's been a really fascinating roaming conversation, both of you, Saman Shard and Dr. Gear Henning Presto-Ujden. It's been a pleasure to meet both of you. Thanks for sharing your insights. And listeners, if today's content has left you feeling anxious and you need to speak to someone now, please call Lifeline on 131114. This is Navigating Parenthood, brought to you by HCF. I'm Gretchen Miller, and we have show notes and all sorts, of course. You can also listen to the series wherever you're listening now. Hope you've enjoyed the show. You know what to do if you have. Share us around. See you next time. Life's full of little bumps. Some you can plan for, some you can't. That's why HCF created My Family Packages with flexible extras so you control how you spend on the services you need the most. Visit hcf.com.au today. Waiting periods of up to 12 months apply.